0: Hello and welcome to another podcast of Law Stories. I am Linda Thompson.
1: I am Megan Talbot. And I'm Richard Ireland. Delighted to be back with you two again to talk about something else.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and today we are talking uh, about the, uh, the Welsh fasting girl case. Indeed
1: we are. And this was
0: briefly brought up in a previous podcast, so we're able to expand on that a
1: little bit more. I think that's what got us us interested in in revisiting it. And essentially, I want to point out before we start that what I'll be looking at here is a case which happened in, well, the, the, the circumstances that it concerns happened in 1869. The legal case concerning them happened in 1870. We'll be looking at this from a historical point of view because that's what I do I'm a legal historian just to reassure your your listeners should they need reassurance that uh, we'll be looking at the law as it existed then um, the law in relation to uh, to children uh, in a similar kind of position to, to that that we're going to examine is now a rather different one but historically I think this is very interesting
0: okay. Could you give us um, a bit of the story?
1: Yeah, the basic story, we go back to uh, the 1860s uh, in northern Carmarthenshire in a a village called Llanfahangel Arath. Um, Llanfahangel Arath is a a rather uh, small village. It's got a lot of new building, but its heart lies around the pub and the church, both of which figure largely in this story. And they're opposite each other in the old heart of the village. Living just outside that village at a farm called Lethaneath is um, a family. And that is um, Evan and Hannah Jacob. Uh, He's a small farmer uh, and his wife. And they have uh, a number of children. One of whom was a girl called Sarah. And Sarah was unwell. Um, at some point in the 1860s and she stopped eating but the worrying thing then was or worrying from a modern perspective is that according to reports she didn't start eating again and she became more and more celebrated as uh, as Megan said the Welsh fasting girl a phenomenon, um, a phenomenon who was able to survive for years without food or without drink. And so the first thing that, that, that happened in terms of testing the veracity of this claim was that local people went, had a meeting chaired by the local vicar. They went out, they observed her for a certain period of time, came back and said, no, we can find no evidence that she's eaten or drunk anything. And so, therefore, what we have here is is obviously something miraculous. That then increased the fame of the girl herself people flocked from all over the country to come and visit her and lay gifts upon her bed they would give her gifts of money and whatever which her parents were very very keen not to accept herself but allowed um, their daughter to 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 take in bed sarah would lie there reading writing poetry we have some of her poetry it exists it's in welsh Um, and And um, she became, as I say, a national phenomenon. Um, Late in 1869, it was decided to repeat the test again, only this time using a panel of doctors to be in charge of it and a number of nurses brought up from a, a London hospital to observe her day and night to see whether she ate or drank anything the test was started in december 1869 and eight days into it uh, sarah jacob died at the age of 12. that's a
0: terribly sad story
1: really it's an enormously sad story and it's made perhaps even sadder by some of the descriptions of her last days, in which she was, I think, clearly clearly suffering. So even though we're going to be talking a little bit about the kind of legal ramifications of this case, I think it's important to remember, as it's important for lawyers and those interested in the law, um, to remember at all points that at the heart of this is, is a, a really very distressing human tra- tragedy involving the death of a, of a small girl.
0: But of course, during that time, um, there was also, um, I suppose, conflict between science and religion, which is, of course, at the heart, partially, of this story.
1: Well, I think you make a very good point there, because what we have happening here, if we think about the social context of this dispute... (laughs) for one thing let's take it back if it had happened 15 years before it, then i don't think people would have found out about it outside the Doku neighborhood there could have been lots of sarah jacobs there then but in the 1860s we've got a burgeoning newspaper industry which picked up the story and spread it throughout the country we had railways which brought people to visit her but as you say importantly we also have uh, beginnings of a deep conflict which still to an extent exists today about how we view the world how we explain the world and it was the distinction between the claims of religion in this case popular Vernacular religion, not the stuff that was coming out of bishops, but popular local beliefs on one hand and the claims of science on the other. It was the nurses, the doctors who represent the claims of science here. And of course, if we again think of the, the age we're in, um, it's often regarded as a big clash between the rationality of, uh, 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 of science and the claims of religion. Comes. At about this time, Darwin's um, publication of The Origin of Species is 10 years before this. So this case is, in a way, about a small girl dying in northern Carmarthenshire. But in another sense, it's about something much bigger and wider. It's how we know the truth of what's happened, what is causation.
0: And, of course, a line amongst all of this, then, is the legal system. So Indeed. The Indeed. justice for the child amongst the difficulties of determining religion and science.
1: Well, that's, uh, you see that, and, and we have to find out, then, where does the law sit on it? Because the law can 't be in a sense agnostic on this, and and so what we have to do, I think if, if, if perhaps I should sort of follow through and tell you what happened with the legal proceedings on this because they they took a, a, a series of, uh, of, of of quite interesting turns. The first thing of course, was that there was uh, an inquest, and we were aware of the coroner 's role in um, Inquests in, um, in, in sudden or unexpected deaths and, uh, or, or deaths in mysterious circumstances even today. And so there's an inquest and the coroner decided, asked the jury what had caused the death um, of Sarah Jacob and who was responsible. Responsible is a very interesting word there because it can mean morally responsible, legally responsible. The coroner didn't spell it out. He Actually, I, the coroner impresses me in this case. He deliberately, I think, left that vague. So the coroner's jury came back and they said, well, the cause of death is obvious. She died of starvation. She died of want of food. Who was responsible? They said her father was um responsible for her death.
0: Alright, oh, and why um was the father blamed in the circumstances? Well,
1: like this again gets very, very interesting because the father, of course, is head of the household, and uh as we'll see just in a minute, uh the the mother um There are are difficulties, let's put it this way, difficulties in attributing criminal responsibility to the mother. I'll come back to that in a minute. But why not the The doctors or the nurses who had, in effect, superintended and facilitated this hideous death of a young child? Well, these were the very issues which were to occupy the next stage of the process. But before we got to the next stage of the process... We have to ask what happened after the coroner's inquest. The answer is nothing at all. That everybody seems to think, oh, okay, this will go away. A girl has died, but it'll go away. The coroner wrote to the Home Office, wrote to the Home Secretary, saying, what are you doing about this? What is anybody doing about this? I I know he did this. I don't think he told anybody he was doing it, but I've read his letter, which is kept at the National Archives in London. And he said, what are we doing? And at that point, the Home Office started investigating to see um, whether any prosecution could take place. But because, let's look at the legal difficulties can we? Can you bear to be to stick with the legal difficulties just for a few minutes? I'm, I, I, I'm sure, sure you will. Here are the legal difficulties that they have to determine. Why is it a difficult case? Well, the first thing to notice is the age of the girl, who was twelve. Now we would have no problem in um, saying that a twelve-year-old is a child. But a 12-year-old in West Wales in the 19th century is almost certainly out out at work. Um, The age of criminal responsibility, of course, was below 12. It was 10 at this time. Uh, Suicide was a crime. So if it could be argued... Of course, it is no longer, but it was at the time. So if it could be argued that, in fact, she starved herself to death then you have some problems of saying well who else could be responsible she was quite capable of making those decisions in the law as it then stood okay so then you say to yourself well on the evidence that you've got what did the father do the answer to that is nothing the father failed to feed her criminal law i I think uh, you, you may be aware of this as it has always had and still has to an extent difficulties not when people do bad things but when people don't do anything at all mm. what we could the, the lawyers always call um, liability for omission. if we look at this case we say well what did the father do on the facts as stated he did nothing he didn't feed his child his child was 12 years old Okay, so that makes his legal position a little bit difficult. Let's move on to the the mother's legal position. What's her position? Well, actually, what did she do? Nothing. And the um, the, the the position is complicated by the fact that in Victorian law, um, which the law of course has always been sort of written by men for men but one of the strange bits uh, about Victorian law is that it assumed that because women were subordinate to men women who were married could not be tried for criminal offences because it was assumed that they were acting under the direction of their husband. He had overborne their will. So it was his responsibility, not theirs. Unless you could prove that their act was independent. But here, what was their act? There wasn't one. Can you have an independent omission? so the liability of the the wife becomes complex There. well what about the, the doctors what about the nurses what had they done nothing
0: well, they observed
1: they observed they sat and watched her watched her die. she wasn't their patient they weren't there to treat her if they were there to treat her it it would have been arguable the fact that, that what they'd done was undertaken a duty of, of care and responsibility towards her But they were only there to observe. So they said, you can't try us. We haven't done anything, let alone anything wrong.
0: Equally, the parents would see the same argument. Exactly, exactly they.
1: so. So what looks like a terrible, uh, a terrible case, and what is a terrible case, and I suppose many people listening to this podcast would say, well, surely something ought to be done about these cases. And as I say, in modern law, something would be done in these cases. But we're here talking about a system which is working out its criminal law. And for them, this is far from straightforward. So... The next stage of the system was that it went to uh, for a preliminary investigation before some magistrates uh, in a pub um, in Clondessil, because a lot of uh, a lot of legal proceedings actually were carried on in public houses. Why? Well, the clues in the name—they were public houses houses open to the public these small villages wouldn't have a courthouse but you would go and and have your um your your cases heard or your inquests carried out in 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 a pub in a public room in a pub so they opened this that whole thing is a fiasco the crown sent down um, a man who later was um one of its m- more famous uh, legal practitioners, of chief justice, a man called Coburn, um, who, who was, um, I'm sorry, it wasn't Coburn, <laughs> a man called Coleridge, who was later to, to become Lord Chief Justice. Coleridge was actually not very clever. I think I'm allowed to make that judgment. <laughs> Megan raises eyebrows here. I think I'm allowed to make that judgment with a view of history.
2: Uh, it was th- not a raised eyebrow. It was just not. <laughs> you know, poor guy.
1: One thing I can say is that he wasn't absolutely straight with the court. He, he claimed not to know anything about the case until the night before he turned up to, to argue it. So, so that, that was his excuse for actually making a bit of a mess of the prosecution arguments. In fact, he did know about this case because, again, I know from looking at the documents in the, in the, that are preserved in, in the archives that he had actually signed uh, the original paper saying that there could be prosecutions in this case. So anyway... He gets stuck in with a man called a local barrister who is the the head of the bench and doesn't allow anybody else on the bench to say anything, a man called Edward Crompton Lloyd Fitzwilliams, who is a bit of a, how can I say this gently, who is an unusual character. Uh, Fitzwilliams spent a lot of time arguing with Coleridge a lot of which was telling him what his brother-in-law had, had told him about Indian fake ears, how he could have been himself a great doctor and whatever it was a long and rambling thing which should have been concluded uh, probably in a day or two at the most uh, the judge arrived at one point to hear the case but they were still on this preliminary inquiry so the judge went back to London and didn't come back again for three months uh, on a size well, possibly in six months on a, on a size at that time so there was this long and, 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 and heated and uh, rather strange discussion which led to a lot of laughter actually at various points in court which of course is wholly un- inappropriate and um, eventually uh, Edward Crompton Lloyd uh, Fitzwilliam said okay you can prosecute the husband and the wife but not the doctor's so then we have the the, the trial itself, and um, at that trial, the assize judge again. One of the things that is remarkable about this case is I've actually looked at the uh, the briefs which were drawn up by the uh, defence uh, uh, solicitor for to brief their their barristers to to see how they were going to going to do this, how they were going to defend this case. Um, Crown started off, the prosecution started off by saying, look, she was okay before the trial. She died of starvation. It was clear that the parents had been feeding her before the trial and taking the money and whatever that was left there. And so they're guilty. They're guilty not of murder probably listeners will know about the distinction between murder and manslaughter they said in this case no not murder but manslaughter for, for uh, 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 gross negligence in, in, in neglecting her to an extent that she died
0: is that also the reason why the doctors were not included
1: yeah yeah so 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 they they they're arguing that this that that, uh, that it's The husband is is guilty and so is the wife, both of whom are are, are culpable under this manslaughter thing. But um, the the prosecution set this out and in effect just said, look, to the jury, look, you're not fools. You can see what's happened. In other words, they didn't go into any of these complex legal arguments that I've just rehearsed to you about omissions and all these things. They just said, look, you know what's happened here bring in a guilty verdict Oof. and the defense said actually again didn't go into all the complex legal things at all they um they simply said well they went for the who, who who's the person you're going to blame for it the person who isn't there so they said okay she was feeding herself and that the parents didn't know about it. She fooled a lot of people who were clever, doctors and nurses and whatever. My clients aren't very clever. They fooled them, as she fooled them as well. She was getting up at night and feeding herself. Now, the judge said, he has to sum up, and he said and I'm trying to put this delicately, and you're in charge of this uh, recording, so stop me if I go too far. They said, well, even if you didn't witness her eating, you would have been aware of the consequences of her eating. Can I put it as delicately as that? You know, you would have seen marks to show that she's, she'd taken food. Jury go out, jury come back in again, and they convict. Interesting thing is they convict the the, the husband for manslaughter and he gets 12 months imprisonment in consequence. They also convict the mother of manslaughter, but, but they say, but they recommend her to mercy because she was clearly acting under the influence of her father, of her, sorry, her husband. But if we think back, I've already said that Victorian law said if that was the truth... She was not guilty at all. But they weren't always terribly good at the law in, in those days, and so they convicted her and sentenced her to six months. So that's how the case finished. Well, that's not quite how the case finished. After they were released from from prison, and again, the, the, uh, the benefits of hindsight, we know that when she faced trial, um, Hannah, the mother was actually already pregnant, although only just so, with, with a, a, another child. But they went back to live in the same village that they, they, they had uh, been in before the trial, which to me, at any rate, knowing the way that ostracism can work in these small-scale communities, means that there was at least some support for them back in, in the locality. So that's how the case begins and ends. Wow. That is super
2: interesting. Uh, The interesting thing I've noted is even though it was occurring at this time when you had this conflict between science and religion and sort of the inciting incident was this conflict between science and religion, um,
1: no one made that argument in court. No, no. I think think it's a a very good point because I think the, the point was both... When, in a way, we can approach these things from a very sort of uh, abstract position. Barristers in the case are not interested in that. One side's going for a conviction. One side's going for an acquittal. You don't want to get involved necessarily in these high-flown, either legal or sort of what we can call metaphysical arguments. You know, you do, and so both. Both sides of the argument, when it got to court, were expecting this massive kind of spiritual scientific dilemma to be addressed and resolved, these difficult legal points to be addressed and resolved. None of the council was interested in doing that. They wanted to get to the heart of the matter. They wanted to, to get down to it. There are, incidentally, if we can perhaps conclude on this there are a couple of things which survive from this case which I think are very interesting one I'm sitting um, although this is uh, not uh, not not something that uh, is available to, to uh, people listening to this although I understand that a picture of it does it will be uh, posted up um, nods all around to suggest it but I have here a, a picture reproduction that, that uh, uh, i worked on with a, a an, an artist um, in london of the photograph of um, evan and hannah jacob the mother and father that was taken when they went into prison on their conviction it's a remarkable picture it, most remarkable of all is the fact that the, the mother hannah is wearing a soft low hat not a traditional tall pantomime welsh uh, hat she was going to wear one of those but um was told not to by her defense uh, solicitor because and this is to, going back into the the, the the question we've just raised he, he wanted them to appear as modern sophisticated people not as being dark antiquated believers in superstition so he said, you know, don't wear the hat that makes you look like a throwback to another age. Even though it's traditional, wear a modern hat. The other thing that you can notice on the picture is strange thing round the ears. Well, these are tiny photographs of of the mother the tiny photograph that this is taken from and it took me a long time looking at that photograph to see what it was but it's clear after you've looked at it hard clearer on the original photograph i have to say than in the engraving that we produced uh, is that these were bunches of flowers Bunches of fresh flowers which the mother on going into prison had behind her ears. Why is that interesting? It's particularly interesting because um, um, the the flowers were worn also by the daughter when she was lying in bed receiving guests. So it's very interesting. That's one of the survivors, the strange old custodial photographs there's another thing too when i was working on this and i was actually doing work for a a radio program on, and i received a phone call from the national library of wales he and a very excited and a man i've known for years and i've never seen him excited he just shouted at me get down here now so i rushed down there and he had found a lock of sarah jacob the fasting girl's hair which had been kept by The local magistrates. And we know a lot was cut off. It appears actually in the contemporary reports at the time. When they cut it off, they said they were going to send it to an expert who could judge character by looking at hair. And everybody laughed at that. And we laugh at it now. But actually, now we do know that you can find out a lot by looking at hair. You can look to see, for example, the uh, question of nutrition and whatever that uh, the, the previous to death and so just to leave leave it perhaps at that with the possibility that we may if we get, can subject this sample to the right kind of testing I'm not a scientist so I'm not quite sure what that is but if we could do that we may end up being able to say a little bit more about the enduring and actually rather distressing history of Sarah Jacob, the Welsh fasting girl.
2: Oh, that's super fascinating, and it's really interesting how it it's on this continuum from religion to almost this sort of pseudo science of we have an expert who can tell you your cake with your hair to the modern <laughs> science of uh, of forensic analysis, and that is super cool because the the um, the case runs the entire spectrum. Well, thank you for chatting with us about that.
1: Great pleasure. I've enjoyed it yet again. Yeah,
2: we, we've enjoyed it too. <laughs> uh, and the uh, the picture we we're referring to will be available uh, on our Facebook feed and on our brand new uh, Patreon page. Uh, if you want to support our podcast, you can do so uh, by donating on that page. And links to that are on our Twitter and on our Facebook. Uh, Law Stories Podcast, and you can... Get that by searching at Law Stories Podcast on uh, Facebook and our Twitter uh, at Law Stories Pod. So, if, if you if you want to know more about future episodes and production updates, as well as the uh, the pictures we've been talking about today, uh, you can find us there. And I, I thank you for listening. Uh, I I I am Megan Talbot.
0: I am Linda Thompson.
2: And
1: I was Richard Ireland. <laughs> <laughs>
2: thank you. Thank you.